Welcome back. This is the Struck Podcast, Episode 7. I'm your co-host, Dan Blewett. I'm joined here remotely by lightning protection expert and CEO of WeatherGuard Lightning Tech, Alan Hall. Alan, how you doing? Great, Dan. How you been? I'm doing well. Um, I feel like this has been like a little bit of an easier, slightly more focused week for me. I don't know why. It's rained a lot of the week, but overall pretty good. How about you? Uh, we've been getting in and out. You know, We're sitting at this new manufacturing facility, so we've been running around back and forth quite a bit but uh you know it's still pretty quiet all the shops are still closed all the restaurants are still closed so there's really no place to go have you been over to the walmart in uh, dc lately <laughs> didn't do what to get pepper sprayed no i have not yeah <laughs> i have not um i think we talked about that story it's, although it might have been cut out of this out of the episode but yeah yeah what what you're alan's alluding to for you listening is uh there was a, a story in dc that he sent me that a woman was getting onto the elevator at a Walmart, which, you know, in cities, there's Walmarts with, you know, on the second, third floor, they might occupy a number of vertical floors and have parking beneath them or, you know, loft apartments above or below, whatever. And uh, a woman was getting into the elevator and other other people were trying to get into the elevator to, you know, like, as people do. And she's like, oh, no, you're not coming to my elevator. And she pepper sprayed <laughs> another woman and the cops were called. And then, like, the, her, the statements from her were just unbelievable. She's like, oh, no, you're not going to get in my in my elevator. Give me that coronavirus. It was it was just, like, straight out of Jerry Springer. <laughs> it was an amazing story. I shared it with my family. That, and that hasn't spread, has it? I mean, are they, are they now the Target? Uh, do you guys have Kmart? I guess Kmart's closed. Or what? what? I mean, <laughs> where, Kmart does not do exist in Washington, D.C. Um, I don't. Kmart's have been going out of business for a while. I, don't, I think they still are a thing, but like kind of not really. We just right? lost ours. Yeah, we just lost ours. Yeah, just north of here. I mean, yeah, DC is a pretty affluent little city. So Kmart, I don't know who's going to Kmart, but but yeah. But the interesting piece of uh, news on my end is I ordered my groceries for the first time ever the other day. I ordered Costco. Oh, you did? Yeah. Okay. It was glorious. And? It was glorious. Sigh. <laughs> My, my sister's been, I mean, rightfully so. My sister's, uh, she's due with her second child in two weeks. And so she urged the family like, hey, it's, and it's a complicated situation because um, she's afraid that her and her husband are going to maybe contract something at the hospital right after she gives birth. Yeah. So she doesn't want to come home with her new baby, greet my parents. You know, everyone wants to see the baby. And then my parents get something from them because they've been in the hospital. So yeah. it's kind of like, They've been asked, they've asked us to, hey, can you guys all quarantine for two weeks before um, the birth? And then uh, we're really just probably not going to see them for the first two weeks after so they can sort of quarantine and be their own little family unit in the house um, right when they get home with the new baby. So it's kind of a it's kind of a crazy situation. But anyway, she urged us to please do everything possible to minimize contact with the outside world. So I ordered my groceries, which was like a i guess probably a 35 dollar upcharge all told wow okay which was like eight bucks service charge eight dollar delivery fee um i tipped the guy 15 dollars. it's not a short trip over here from um across the way in alexandria virginia and then um and then they mark up some of the prices but not others which is which is uh interesting and i don't understand their algorithm because i'm a very I'm not like a, I'm not like overly worried about price when I shop, but I know what everything costs and what it should cost. I, I, I would guess that you're probably the same way. You said engineers yeah, are yep. very much like they know <laughs> if they're getting, we know, yeah, exactly. we know everything. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm the same way too. So like, I know, like I love fruit 
and I know I'm very opportunistic about, you know, what the bright price is that I'll buy grapes at or blueberries or oranges. Like I don't pay more than I, I know I should for any given item. And so right. looking through the, as you're shopping on the app or on the website, it's, uh, you know, you're like going through all your items and you're like, oh, this is like a lot more than it normally is. Or this is like, seems like it's the same price. You assume that everything was going to be like marked up like 5% or 10% or something to account. That's probably how they get their fee. But in reality, some things were not marked up at all, it seems like. And others were marked up almost double. It was really, really strange. Hmm. Yeah, what, what was the company you were buying the groceries from? What was what was the grocery store? Uh, well, it was Costco. and Oh, it's Costco. Okay. Yeah, but it's uh, through Instacart. So, hmm. but yeah, so like, for example, I got a five-pound bag of frozen tortellini, which is usually like 12-ish dollars, and it was like 12-ish dollars. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, that's a big item, kind of heavy, like, you know, big volume. Yeah. Um, and then I got a one pound thing of uh organic spring mix which is usually 449 <laughs> and that was 749 i don't know why you're laughing right now but because um, that's a lot of food five pound bag of tortellini is that what you just yeah, said yeah it's great to have in your freezer good lord I'm, that's not a I week's that's not a week's worth of food yeah i mean that's a month's <laughs> oh worth but God. it's great to have in your freezer <laughs> two minutes okay. two minutes and some boiling water but like why would the huge bag of pasta be basically the same price it normally is but then the spring mix is 750 instead of 450 that's maybe that's, it's corona free i don't know <laughs> yeah maybe they went in there and extra washed my it. wife my wife brought home some fruit that came had a label on it uh, uh came from northern northern italy i thought man they must be have a hard time unloading produce that came from yeah, northern it's like italy. a smallpox it, blanket right there <laughs> It was kiwi, which I didn't really connect. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. I mean, Northern Italy, it's a good place to grow fruit like that. <laughs> so my daughter chimed in like, what the, what are we buying fruit for Northern Italy from? Because it's on discount because no one wants to buy it right now. Yeah. yeah. So I thought that, I thought that was cute. You know, people get very sensitive about that because um, they know where the coronavirus has been. So any products that come out of there, everybody's real cautious about. I guess that makes sense short term, but long term, it's, it's kind of ridiculous, right? Yeah. Um, and that, that fruit had been on a ship for probably two weeks before it got to us. There's no way that it's going to be contagious at all, clearly. But, you know, that's not the way people always think. It's like a Trojan horse, but but oranges <laughs> yeah. or grapefruit or whatever <laughs> it's a it way is. to attack America one piece of produce at a time. <laughs> exactly. But, I mean, that is interesting. Like, I, I bought a bag of oranges, and they're fantastic, but... It's it's the time of year where it should not be orange season. Like you shouldn't be able to get oranges that taste good at all right now, right? Like it's uh, it's May, sure? I think isn't? I mean, citrus season's November. I thought it was in the spring. Is it the, is it late? Oh. I think lemons are produce all year round. I don't know about oranges. I think lemons lemon trees will produce all year round. I think oranges can be kind of year round, right? It's not it's not a it's not a fall food. I'm pretty sure. Well, hmm. it's I mean citrus season in Florida. I'm pretty sure is the winter because we would get uh, from like my dad's Rotary Club, I mean, it was a Lions Club, one of his like you know public service clubs. Always did like a big uh, straight from Florida like the best like gee, just the best oranges oh, and grapefruits peak. Yeah. yeah and that yeah. was always in in like around novemberish um hmm. and then they seem to just like kind of get crappy around february march but now i mean california i think grows them probably more year round and they're coming from all over the world and all over yeah, yeah. You, of course you don't know watermelons are still not not good out of season no and we're getting nope. close getting close it's almost watermelon season so 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> exciting times. Oklahoma, Oklahoma has some really good watermelons. I think it's the end of July, early August is when they're at their peak. Yeah, that's good eating. Yeah, up here in the northeast. Although I guess I'm more like just the... I get, I get, I, so, I, so I should explain that I called D.C. the northeast the other day and someone corrected me. And it's really the mid-Atlantic, but... Mid-Atlantic? I don't yeah. know. Maybe it's not the north. I don't know. You're in Massachusetts. Does <laughs> Maryland count, count as northeast or no? Well, we're New England. Okay, yeah, it's a different you're, thing. You're New England, that's true. We're one of the original colonies, I suppose. But I mean, so New England is everything except when we think of New the Northeast. It's everything except New York State. Okay, okay, <laughs> which is odd. Uh, but yeah, they call it consider us New England. It's kind of like uh, I always think of the Midwest. When I say the Midwest, people get really antsy. Uh, so I grew up in Nebraska. And so we always call it the Midwest. Kansas, Nebraska, Oklahoma would be considered mostly the Midwest from from local standpoint. But people in Ohio consider them to be the Midwest. We're the heartland. It's a big uh-huh. thing. <laughs> Why that even matters, I don't know. Why we're the heartland in Nebraska beats the heck out of me. It seems like we're kind of in the middle of the country, so we should be the Midwest. But whatever. Yeah, I don't consider yeah. Ohio to be the Midwest. I don't know. I no, think it's not got, far enough. It's too to close to I got to an with a guy. Yeah, no, I got an altercation with a professor one time about what with him, because I had written in a paper something about the Midwest. He goes, well, the Midwest is Illinois and Ohio and Indiana. Mm, okay. Yeah, I don't think sure. that. I think, it's, I think it's Illinois and over, Illinois and then to the West. Iowa, I mean, Iowa clearly would fall into that yeah. category. South Dakota, Nebraska, Kansas, go up and down north to south there. Texas is its own thing, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not odd. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's an interesting uh, breakdown. But, but, I mean, I guess Ohio is kind of that border one because Ohio borders Pennsylvania, and Pennsylvania is certainly not the Midwest. No. Um, and Ohio is pretty expansive, like west to east. I feel like I'm driving. But it's flat. Yeah. Uh, Ohio is flat. It's like the first place where you're kind of like, okay, we're sort of in the quote-unquote Midwest because it's farm country. You got there and there's cornfields and cornfields and uh, it reminds you of Iowa on some level. It, it's a diff, slightly different climate, but mm. it's kind of like driving through Iowa in the middle of July. There's a lot of corn out there. And so then, kind of looks like that. Is Kentucky in the Midwest? Then that's right below Ohio. I feel like it would have to. No, be. I don't. You know, I, I don't know what we can consider Kentucky. Uh, so, yeah, it's right across the board. Yeah, this is this is, this is getting <laughs> in a very nebulous uh, geography well, you know, right here. We're all going to start talking about it in terms of uh, college football conferences, right? And I think that's how mm. the United States is kind of broken up, right? The SEC, the ACC, the Pac-10. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's an easy word to describe it, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So today we're chatting about a bunch of different, uh, some interesting new technologies. The first one on our list, Alan, Uber Elevate, the future of urban mobility. Have you seen these uh, these these little choppers i guess they're potentially going to be electric maybe unmanned plan for 2023 uh, they say between suburbs and cities i thought they were piloted but at least that maybe it's the initial versions are piloted but oh yeah they probably are a, you're right a, a fancy helicopter right uh it's it's electric driven i think that's the, the goal to keep them to be a clean energy device um I don't know if it makes much sense to me. Uh, it, 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 the complexity of having multiple motors versus one gas-driven turbine or two t- turbine engines that are turning a rotor, it's six and one half dozen and the other to me. It's pretty much the same thing. And they're, they're, I don't, not, you know, obviously in all these things, it's all about reliability and safety. So those types of aircraft haven't don't have any track record yet. 
Well, helicopters, we pretty well understand at this point. So anytime we introduce something new like that, it's going to go through a, some teething pain. And yeah. I kind of wonder what's going to happen here. Well, just from a company standpoint, I mean, we talked a little bit off air about this, but Uber's never been profitable. They're not even close. Nope. Do you feel like nope. this, uh, I mean, is, this, is, is helicopters oh, going to pull them out of the throngs of... No, uh, come on. The red? Aviation is just like racing, right? And how do you make a small amount of money in racing? You start out with a large amount of money. You always burn cash in aviation and in racing cars. There is no way you can make a oodles of money in anything that's aviation related without having some sort of great technology product that drives huge demand. And I'm, I'm not sure even in an Uber situation, they can be driving huge demand, especially with all the, you know, pretty much all transportation shut down right now. Now, the question I think from an, an Uber type thing, if you want to not fly in your Southwest 737 between Phoenix and Los Angeles, you know, then I think you may have some sort of argument where you want to fly solo or in a, with a group of family, so you're not open up to other people. There may be some advantages there, but boy, that's a tough, tough market. It's one of those uh, marketing things where you always want to have the coolest product, but in aviation, that doesn't always pay off. There's been a lot of aircraft programs over the years that have been really cool looking in advance and that just couldn't make it to market. Or once they got to market, they couldn't sustain themselves for a couple of years. It's a hard, that, that's why you don't see a lot of aviation companies or larger aviation companies because it's just a, such a difficult economics to make that work. Well, and if these end up becoming electric powered, how, how, I mean, it takes up many, many years, obviously, to develop an aircraft, right? I mean, what's the typical mm. timeline of, all right, we're designing this five. five years? Five plus. So, yeah, a lot of programs I've worked on have been way longer than five. So, do the designs change over those course of, of that five years to reflect like new technology, yeah. or like how do they do that? Yeah. Is it in flux like that, or what? Uh, is someone in flux the first couple of years? It's always in flux. Once you get to building the first airplane or two, it sort of locks in because the technology has to all play together so you can't keep upgrading technology as you go so you kind of lock in the technology and then rush as fast as you can to get the thing to marketplace it's hard because of all the complexity of all the systems it is not like uh, old stick and rudder everything's connected with cables or or uh, uh, it's fabric cover airplanes anymore it, they're all complicated devices there's a ton of electronics and equipment inside these things and automated systems so the complexity drives the duration and all the testing you have to do to make sure they're safe drives times out it it years ago to, to shove a new airplane out was probably a couple years and it feels like now it's like eight to ten i think the mitsubishi mrj airplane that's been going on longer than i can remember uh, honda jet was the same way honda was in development for probably 10 years before it really started rolling it's not easy it's not easy. It's, a, it's way different than building a car, in my opinion, just because you kind of got the foundation of a car there all the time and the safety features are kind of prescribed when you start. Aviation is different. Well, so, you got to do a lot of flight tests. And, yeah. yeah. And so I'm kind of wondering out loud about, you know, like the batteries. So if, if these are electric mm -hmm. engines, I like battery technology is just it's improving at a crazy speed. Right. So how do you design a plane, an electric plane, you know, in year one? and have it still be even you know relevant as far as like the battery packs and, and the design to accommodate the battery packs and the, and the weight of the battery packs five years later yeah i think the battery technology hasn't had actually hasn't changed all that much uh, they're 
the lithium ion batteries were popular and people, aircraft companies were starting to change over to them from weight saving standpoint instead of having lead acid, lead acid batteries to like to start the airplane or to run some stuff while the engines aren't, aren't turning. Um, that was 10 ish years ago that, uh, lithium ion started being used. And then that, that's what most of these electric aircraft are going to be running are probably lithium ion ones just, just because of the weight savings. Yeah. I've seen some that have been lead acid, lead acid would still work, but, uh, uh yeah, I'm not sure that uh, lithium ion is going to be the the final destination for all of this. Uh, lithium is not an easy metal to come by. Uh, obviously, Elon Musk is trying to create these battery factories, which may drive down the cost of it. But uh, still, um, I'm not sure where it's all going to go. Uh, battery technology has been the limiting factor for most of society for the last 50 plus years, right? Mm-hmm. If if we had good batteries, we would be driving electric cars. <laughs> We would. We would. We would totally be driving electric cars, and we're not, right? So if you had a better better storage battery, a more efficient storage battery, and one that lasted more than a couple of years, then things would be totally different than they are right now. Yeah. Well, speaking of other technology that's grown, I don't know, maybe slower. I would say it's slower than it probably should have, is in-flight Wi-Fi. So I just read recently a, a white paper from Panasonic Avionics, and they talked about how you know millennials are traveling in a lot different sort of way than they used to, or at least just, I guess, the way they used to design their aircraft and um, cater to guests who travel kind of more as like big family trips. And now millennials are taking more frequent, often solo trips with friends, not less, not necessarily with families. And they're just talking mm-hmm. about their, their sort of demand for in-flight tech. And, you know, Wi-Fi is one of the things that they're discussing. And of course, right now, JetBlue is, uh, I think, the only carrier that offers free wi-fi and yeah. um it seems to me like that's that should be something that's just free for everyone like that should be a incentive and just build it in at the price of the of the of the ticket but i don't know where do you fall on that i mean i feel like wi-fi is still terrible on flights i've i bought it once and it was a waste mm. of 15 dollars. it was just trash i couldn't get anything done it was so slow um so that was just one experience i think that was on delta but I don't know. Really? Do you, I mean, okay. do, you, do you have you had how good success? How long ago with, was that? Well, probably, how long probably, ago was probably that? two years ago. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Was, I, I'm surprised by that. Hmm. Uh, so the, the I use uh, the Wi-Fi on Southwest Airlines all the time, uh, and I pay for it every time I get on the airplane. Now you can't stream movies. You can't watch a ball game with it. You can't uh, try to download huge files with it. But you can send email and you can send, you know, you could text and that sort of thing, which I, I think is kind of useful on a six hour flight or eight hour across the country kind of thing. I think it's useful. Uh, JetBlue was really the leader in this thing years and years and years ago because they own Life TV. So they got in early. They actually had the company that was doing a lot of their initial Wi-Fi stuff. Uh, so they outfitted all their aircraft early on. They had the company to do it. They were doing things down in, I think, in Orlando, Florida. It was where that was based out of. And so they modded all their airplanes, and they offered Wi-Fi for free. And if you follow the JetBlue Twitter page like I do, you see that their customers really love the free Wi-Fi. Yeah. Uh, so their Wi-Fi is not that much different than everybody else's. I don't think it's much different than uh, Southwest Airlines Wi-Fi or uh, some of them like like uh, GoGo, I think, is on Delta. And I've had good success with GoGo before. Uh, but I guess it depends on how many people are using it, clearly, right? So mm-hmm. the demand on the aircraft is based on how many people are using it. I, I don't know if there's a, a a good way to get Wi-Fi more in use. I think the, the 
the conflict that Wi-Fi is having is that mobile phones and iPads and that kind of thing are getting more and more memory inside of them. So you can shove more and more movies. You can download Netflix. You can download Amazon Prime right to your device. And then, and I've done that and, and flick it on on your phone and you can watch a movie pretty easily on the flight. Yeah. You don't need the Wi-Fi for that. And, and Southwest Airlines also offers a, a lot of uh, free movies and television shows, right, which are free on Southwest also. So the, there's a limited set of movies and a limited, and I think there's a, a, a set of television channels you can watch live, which are totally free. Now it's not, you can't send email and that kind of thing. That, that costs a couple of bucks, but the rest of it is is free. Most people, I, when I'm on a Southwest flight, I think it's about, uh, I would say 40%, 30, 40% are probably watching some sort of free TV with that system. But a lot of people are watching their own movie that they already downloaded. So as, as we get uh, like the new iPhone, I forget how much memory is in that thing, 64 gig, or maybe it's more than that, 128 gig or it's inside that thing. Man, you can load a lot of movies in, which then sort of defeats the purpose of having Wi-Fi. So they're playing a technology game, in my opinion. You know, you can have the Wi-Fi and you can do the email thing, but you... You know, for a couple hours, does it make that much difference if you're flying on a 10 o'clock flight from uh, the West Coast to the East Coast? Probably doesn't make any difference. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I don't I don't disagree with any of that. I just I guess a question. Well, hey, when it's so expensive, I mean, I, I wouldn't say it's so expensive. 50 bucks is a lot. I, I think Southwest is like seven or eight. Well, That's 15. 15. Bucks. Yeah. Um, is that is that for every leg? It's fifteen bucks because Southwest you so. pay once for the day. And don't quote me oh, on the okay. exact price, but I'm pretty sure okay. it was over. It was over. Like it was enough where I was like, eh, I probably shouldn't do this, but I'll, I'll you know I'll actually work. I guess maybe mm-hmm. I should. I'm pretty sure it was fifteen bucks, but you know you get burned by it once. You're like, well, I'm not gonna do that again on any airline. I mean, pretty much because you're like, well, you don't know any yeah. better. How many sample sizes do you test before you're like, well, this is just wasting lots of my money. You know, like. So. Yeah, 15 bucks at a time is tough, and if, especially every leg you have to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, I buy Southwest I, I, when, every time I'm on an airplane because it's part of my industry and we provide strike tape to those radomes. Uh, I like to see how well those systems are working, so I always buy and see how well it works. I haven't run – I only ran into problems – this is a couple years ago on Southwest where there, I, we were traveling to uh, – I think we were going to Florida at the time. There were a lot of kids on the airplane. I thought, man, there's a lot of people on the Wi-Fi, so it was running not great. Mm-hmm. But that's the only time I've ever had real trouble with it. You know, it, 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 it yeah. But the, the, the newer systems, as they go from KU up to KA frequency band, and they get a, there's going to be more data available. There's always shoving more and more data through those systems, especially with like Elon Musk's low Earth orbit uh, satellite system. That's going to provide a ton of data too, right? So the more data you're streaming, more people are more likely to use it, and also probably lowers the cost of operating the thing. Uh, so airlines may offer it free. Yeah. So let's talk a bit about a little bit about how Wi-Fi gets into a plane. Um, yeah. So ThinkCom is one of the uh, SACCOM antennas com- or antenna companies. You know, they supply yeah. those to companies like GoGo and others. Um, mm-hmm. Tell me about those systems. Like how does a ThinkCom SACCOM antenna or uh, yeah, SACCOM antenna work? It's a think of it as like a pizza pie dish. It's flat. It's round and it spins. <laughs> it's or like a an old record player. I know people are familiar with record players anymore, but it kind of looks like a record player. It's a flat disc and it and it rotates. It's electronically steerable, but also rotates to help steer the the beam. So there's always a beam reaching out to the satellite to talk to the satellite. So on top of the aircraft, you're going to see this. Uh, there's on the ThinCom system. There's actually a transmit and a receive antenna. There are different frequencies. So it transmits one frequency, receives at another. So they're like uh, one and 
one antenna in front of the other. Then they're covered over with a, a radome cover. That's and then inside that inside that uh, unit, it depends on ThinCom's a little bit different the way they construct their thing. But there's other electronic boxes. I think ThinCom's electronic boxes. There's some electronics in the antennas themselves out there, and then uh, they pipe that down into the airplane where. Uh, there's some um, they, some signal things that happen down in the in the cabin area, and then there's usually a, co- a box or two that are in a rack somewhere in the airplane. Uh, Carlisle outside Milwaukee, Wisconsin makes a lot of those pieces of equipment. But uh, and then there's uh, essentially a, a router, and it's broadcasting signals out to the cabin. Uh, I think sometimes an antenna on the front, antenna on the back, depending on how they got it set up, or antennas up in the ceiling. Um, so you have good Wi-Fi. So it's not just the antenna outside. There's actually a couple of electronic boxes inside and, of course, a couple of antennas on the inside. Okay. And so these are susceptible to lightning strikes, correct? Yeah, the radomes are on the antennas are. Absolutely, they are. And so obviously strike tape, uh, you know, segmented lightning diverter by, you know, your company, WeatherGuard Lightning Tech, that's one that protects them. How does that work, and, and, and what do these systems look like to keep these things from going out when they get struck by a, you know, a, a, you know, a lightning bolt? So the, the strike tape actually goes on the outside of the radome. So if you're standing up in the waiting area of there uh, or coming down the jetway onto the airplane, you can see those little bumps on top of the airplane. And on, on top of those bumps, you see a couple of stripes. Those are strike tape, which are uh, a device which takes a lightning back safely down to the aircraft. So it basically takes it away from uh, the, uh, the antennas, the ThinCom antennas that are underneath. Uh, it, it kind of works that as lightning gets close, those things ionize and provide it. It says, hey, lightning, come over here. I'm going to direct you back to the airplane safely. That's what they do. So a lot of those SATCOM radomes have strike tape on them. It, it's basically it's a means of make, keeping them from getting punctured and damaging the antennas. The antennas are very expensive. So a lightning strike that punctures the radome, radome's expensive, and it hits the antenna. The antenna is expensive. It's a big repair, expensive repair, and the cost of tri- strike tape is relatively inexpensive compared to the, the cost of the antenna or the radome and the downtime for the aircraft. So uh, that's why uh, most of the radomes you see out there, SATCOM radomes, have strike tape on them. And then, so the, the SATCOM radome is typically mounted on top of the plane on the fuselage. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's a that's a lower attachment point for for lightning. So obviously the plane's going, you know, four hundred five hundred miles per hour, and as a yeah. lightning strike hits it mid flight, it's not just going to like touch it and go down. It's going to connect and then attach. So it hits like kind of like the neck of the plane. So if you're imagining a human being mm-hmm. being an airplane, for you listening here, as I'm trying to visualize in my head, um, you know, it hits you in the neck, but you're moving so fast that then it hits you in the back, and then it hits you in the butt, and then it hits you in the foot on the way out. If that makes sense. Um, yeah, that was a very crude the that. way I'm visualizing it in my head. But uh, but so it's yeah. going to attach multiple places, right? It does because the lightning channel is stationary in the sky and you're moving through it. So as you move through it, it reattaches on you. And if it's attached to the top part of the airplane, which it happens to a lot, it's the top part of the fuselage, the airplane actually flies through that and the radome actually passes through that lightning channel. It'd be like passing through uh, a a car wash. Like you're running through the car wash, right? So you're going to get wet as you run through it. Uh, The the strike tape, as as the radome passes through that lightning channel redirects that lightning to the the airframe 
and away from the antennas underneath. So it's a different lighting environment. The, the peak current in that part of the aircraft is 100,000 amps. On the nose and the tail and the wingtips, it tends to be 200,000 amps is what the FAA requirement is. So it has a little less energy uh, than you know, the big strikes you see on the wingtips, but it's still damaging enough. And if 100,000 amps were to penetrate that radome, it would do a decent amount of damage to it. It, where it'd have to come off and get repaired, and the antenna would have a scar. <laughs> a minimum would have a scar mark on it. And worst case, the electronics would be in trouble. Yeah. It's a lot of energy. Yeah, the antennas are not designed for that, right? The antennas are, are not designed to take a direct strike uh, because it just you add so much weight and complexity to the antennas. It's a lot less expensive to make the radome uh, to redirect the, the current somewhere else with strike tape than it is to try to design the antenna to handle all that current. Gotcha. So... Uh, and that's for the, the the designers or the engineers listening to this. That's Lightning Zone 2A, right? Lightning Zone 2A. That's Lightning Zone 2A, yeah. Okay. And then, obviously, so there's different, like you said, there's different requirements for amperage um, yeah. and action integral at each of these different, like, why are there different? Why is it different? Like, why does it have to be only 100,000 amps capable on a Lightning Zone 2A versus a, a 1A? Oh, that's just the mysteries of lightning. Uh, so in the lightning strike world, uh, the, where lightning initially attaches to are the extremities, and that's when the first big current pulse happens. Uh, it's just some of the physics related around lightning. So that first big pulse, like even if you're standing out in the prairies of Kansas and you're watch, Kansas and watching a lightning strike happen, that first big flash is the, the, usually the highest energy uh, strike, and then you'll see a couple of subsequent flashes those subsequent flashes are less energy so um yeah there's a lot of physics involved with it but essentially that first strike tends to be the biggest pulse and that first strike tends to occur on airplanes out on the extremities the nose the wing set and the tail uh, once that first big explosion happens then there's a couple of subsequent pulses that happen the okay. radome on top so the satcom radomes have to be passing through that when those subsequent flashes occur and that's why you only test those SATCOM radomes to 100,000 amps versus 200,000 amps because you're, you're seeing some of those subsequent flashes occur and you're flying right through it. So it's a timing issue, right? So you have to be flying through that part that when that flash occurs, when it occurs randomly, and then the radome has to be in the, in the wrong spot at the wrong time. Now, have I seen damage to SATCOM radomes from lightning strikes? Yes, I uh, totally have, right? So... Uh, it's not uncommon for SATCOM radomes to take lightning strikes. Now, m- most of those lightning strikes have been uh, diverted safely to, to ground. I've seen some older radomes that didn't have a lot of lightning protection on them because it was just uh, we we're just starting to figure things out where they have been punctured. But more recently, uh, I think the, the, the strike tape designed radomes have done really well out in the field. Gotcha, gotcha. So I, I just want to transition to... One more topic before we wrap up here, and yeah. that is the uh, the Boeing and Brayer breakup. Oh, so, gosh, yeah. what do you what do you got for us? That's huge. Uh, Boeing was going to acquire roughly eighty percent of Embraer, and Embraer is the the big aircraft manufacturer down in Brazil. Uh, and, and Embraer's got an impressive aircraft line. So they've made smaller aircraft, but now they're interested like the sort of 100 to 150 passenger aircraft. Uh, the E-2 is their, their series of aircraft. It's uh, like a 737-ish kind of airplane. Uh, gotcha. and, and so it's, it's a little bit below in terms of size of a 737. So it would be like an entry level to a 737 or entry level to a 757 sort of thing. And... Uh, Boeing was going to acquire 80% of Embraer 
for roughly four to five billion dollars. And that deal had well, that's been a while when that deal started. So that deal had been kind of working, it's progressing its way through. Uh, that was sort of in response to some of the things that Airbus had done. So Airbus had purchased or Airbus was given 50% of the C-Series program when the C-Series and the C-Series were having trouble financially and they just needed to unload part of that program and the and the and the debt that they were going to occur from that program. So Airbus acquired that and then I think Airbus bought the last bit of it just recently. So Airbus had bought this entry-level airplane, which they uh, put a new name on it, called it the A220. So the A220 is like a hundred-ish, again, a like hundred to 150 passenger airplane depending on the configuration. Uh, airplane that's a, a it gets you into like the A320 size airplane. So it's like a, a, a regional aircraft. It's a good fit um, as, as as a regional jet kind of thing. Very modern airplane. The A220 has a carbon fiber wing on it. It's a very advanced technology. It's got a geared turbofan engine on it. Very advanced engine and very efficient engine. So Boeing had to do something to sort of compete with that. And so they were trying to, in my opinion, they were trying to grab Embraer and compete at that entry-level jet market, the regional jet market thing. Okay. But obviously, uh, Boeing had the 737 MAX issue hit, which stopped all 737 MAXs from flying. And it, it, it didn't shut down the production line, but it hampered all their deliveries. So they haven't delivered any of those aircraft yet. And they have to do some more certification work. So Boeing got hit with that. Then this COVID-19 thing hit and all the airplanes stopped flying for the most part. And Boeing had to you know, stop work at the factory because uh, some of the employees had, had uh, COVID-19. So they're doing all the safety measures, which is the right thing to do. Um, yeah. uh, and uh, when I think when Boeing, so one of the early things was, can Boeing survive without getting funding from the government? There was going back and forth. There was a lot of sort of bickering on both ends there. But uh, I think Boeing just said, you know what? We could just use 4 or $5 billion back in our bank account. Now, that's a big deal because Embraer, on, on their side, from what all the things that I've read, was committed to making this deal into reality. So Embraer had like stopped. So all that commercial, commercial work that Embraer was doing, they had sort of stopped work back in December and then sent everybody home and tried to separate that, that part of the company into Boeing. And it was going to turn into to Boeing come 2020. Uh, and everybody would have been, I think, got a new badge. They would have been Boeing, and it's partially owned by Embraer, but Boeing would have been running the show down there in terms of uh, kind of the designs and marketing and that sort of thing. So Embraer spent a bunch of money to, re- to get to this conclusion. And then Boeing could walk away and did walk away. Now, I think there's two parts of that. One, Embraer on their own, uh, I think they're going to be just fine, but they're, they're mostly into the metal airplane thing. They've done some carbon fiber stuff, but they haven't been into like the carbon fiber wings yet. Uh, so they're do, mostly doing metal wings and they're doing carbon fiber bits and bobs around it. On the other side, Airbus has got this A220, which is probably the, one of the most uh, advanced aircraft being built today. Carbon fiber wing, uh, great engines on it. It's a right fit for the right time when a lot of regional jets are going to be flying in the United States and a lot of the bigger airplanes are not going to be flying in the United States. So Airbus feels Mm -hmm. like they're like perfectly positioned. Subsequent to that, Boeing uh, and Spirit, Spirit, Spirit Aerosystems, which was which was Boeing. So Spirit in Wichita, Kansas, was the old Boeing facility. So Spirit makes sub-assemblies for Boeing up in Seattle. 
and they make like the 730, 787, large sections of the 787. They make a lot of the 737 fuselages, go from Wichita, from Spirit up to Seattle to where they get finalized. Spirit is going to build a composite wing facility in Scotland. And that was hmm. there to be, that was going to feed new Airbus wing designs. So some new aircraft that Airbus was in, planning on doing, Spirit was going to be the manufacturer of the composite wing, and they were building this new facility in Scotland, and it was supposed to open relatively soon. At the same time, Spirit bought the old Bombardier Shorts Division in Belfast, Northern Ireland. Well, in Belfast, Northern Ireland is where they make the, the C-Series, now A220 composite wing. So now they got two composite, Spirit has two composite wing facilities sort of right next door to one another. The, the Scotland and the, and the Belfast places are not physically far apart from one another. So Boeing supply chain through Spirit has all this composite wing technology. So I'm wondering if Boeing is thinking, well, we could buy Embraer for four and a half, five billion dollars, whatever the magic number is. Or we've got our old division Spirit, which now has these two composite advanced technology wing places. We can build our own airplane. Yeah. It wouldn't surprise me that Boeing says, hey, I have a supply chain that I'm already happy with, Spirit, and they have supply chain, which has done some remarkable things for Airbus. Maybe we tap into that and start making our own regional jet and we save ourselves the, the $5 billion and put a, you know, a couple billion into a new airplane over the next couple of years and go compete with Airbus. That That's a... That's a play I think could be real. Yeah, it seems reasonable. Yeah, yeah. Don't, don't you think so? Because there's a lot of aerospace engineers right now looking for jobs. And in Wichita, Kansas, if you hadn't worked for Boeing, that would be unusual when Boeing was still in Wichita. So a lot of the people that had lived in, or the engineers that were in Wichita, had either worked in Seattle or worked at Boeing in Wichita. So there's, there's a knowledge base there about how Boeing does things. So I think there is some connection in there where if if Boeing decided not to buy Embraer, I'm not sure it's going to hurt Boeing all that much because they have other options. Embraer, yeah, on that the, does that make sense? And so Embraer doesn't necessarily have those other options because they would have liked to pair up with a larger player like Boeing so they could compete with the Airbuses of the world. It's only getting bigger, right? So the, the, the smaller aircraft companies eventually get eaten up. Bombardier is now just a small business jet aircraft company. They've divested of most of the regional jets. So Mitsubishi took on the regional jets from Bombardier. There's just a real weird consolidation going on. But at the end result of it, you're not getting smaller, newer, quicker companies. You're getting larger, bigger companies to come out of it. A lot has changed. Gotcha. It's a big yeah. deal. It's a really big deal for Embraer. It's a really big deal for, for Boeing. And Airbus is just sitting there licking their chops thinking, man, we're going we're gonna to kill this market because we, we don't have any competition right now. That's probably true. Yeah, it's a, it's it's an interesting time that we're living in right now with just all the shakeups from coronavirus, just all the new brutal. very qualified people out there looking for jobs and all these different companies being acquired or maybe I know there's a lot of other companies that maybe had a better footing going into this that are now going to maybe be like okay, maybe we need to acquiesce and and be acquired by a bigger firm because we're strapped now. We're, we're strapped. Know, we're, we're in a worse position than we were. I yeah. think that's going to be a lot of companies, not just in aviation. So. No, it's going to be it's going to be all over the industry. I, I don't... Yeah. It's It comes down to um, how much cash they had in the bank and whether they can keep the, those talented people locked in or they're going to get sucked up by somebody else. 
talent in the aircraft industry, you know, comes in waves. And it was surprising having lived in Wichita for about four or five years, how many of the engineers that had worked at Cessna and Beach and Boeing, most of them had at one point, they had done the loop or, and, and or Learjet, right? So they had done the loop in town. And that has, you know, as, as all those companies have consolidated, they've kind of merged in. So it's either you're working at Boeing or you're working at Textron, uh, or you're going down to Florida and working at the Embraer place down in Florida, there's not a huge amount of options, right? Or Gulfstream, obviously Gulfstream is a big program. So they're, they're, you know, you're getting less and less selection where you're going to go. It's going to be, in the next six months, you're going to see a lot of changes. I'm, I'm, I'm really interested to see how it all plays out, just in the aviation industry, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Alan, good episode today. Covered a lot of topics. I think we were, we were kind of moving through a lot of... Uh, a lot of interesting stuff at the beginning, but, um, you know, with Walmart, pepper spray, <laughs> grocery delivery, <laughs> uh, finishing yeah. up a little, a little more on the, uh, you know, the, the, in the, the business side, which I like talking about. It's interesting just to think about all the, the business. It's just such, there's so much ahead of us that is just so unknown. It's just such a weird, unprecedented time for every industry. It's yeah, it just is. fascinating. So, yep. Um, well, thank you for listening. Uh, if you're new to the show, we really appreciate you listening. We're on Spotify, iTunes, uh, and we also are on very heavy on YouTube. So watch this video on YouTube, watch it in short clips as well. So if you just have a couple minutes and you want to grab a quick bite of the show, you can do that. Be sure to leave us a review. It always helps us grow the show, um, whether that's on iTunes or Spotify or anywhere else you listen to podcasts and be sure to check out our company at weatherguardarrow.com where we have tons of educational um, articles, videos, obviously our podcasts, where if you're a radar design engineer or just an otherwise aviation lifer, you can learn a lot from us as we help you, um, you know, get your projects done on time. So Alan, thanks again. And um, we will see you here next week on the Struck Podcast.